Well, if you would stand with me, every week we read the passage and we stand as we read God's word because we believe that it is God's very word to us. And we want to be sober-minded as we read it and take it seriously. And so we stand in honor of God's word. And so this morning we're in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. You can look with me on your screen or in your Bible. All right, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of my favorite things about Story Church is we have a really awesome and unique, diverse group of people, different backgrounds, different church backgrounds. We have people who've followed Jesus a really long time since they were kids, grew up in the church, and we have people who've only been following Jesus for a couple of years. I have a lot of different stories represented in this room. But what the cool thing about that is, is that regardless of where you're from, how long you followed Jesus, there isn't some Christian hierarchy of who the awesome, stellar Christians are and who the lowly, lame Christians are. Because ultimately, we all need the same help, the same wisdom, and the same Savior every single day. Which means that we also all, regardless of how long you follow Jesus, we need to be reminded of, of the basic, simple things of, of the faith. And what does it look like to follow Jesus? How do we actually do that every day on a practical level? Because if you're like me, you need to be reminded of that. We get really distracted. Life has a lot going on. There's a lot going on in our world. And our, our minds are not very good at focusing on things long-term. So we need those reminders. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to show us what it looks like to live for Jesus in this world. And not with a bunch of really heady theology or complicated concepts, but some really simple, tangible, on-the-ground wisdom for how we can live for Jesus. Because I think if we look out in this world, it's pretty obvious that things are kind of bleak. Things are kind of dark. And yet, as we're about to see in this passage, as Christians, we're called to be light in that darkness. So how do we do that? How do we face challenging circumstances, darkness in our world, and somehow not get caught up in the discouragement of that or in the sin of that, but to actually be a light for Christ? Well, Paul's going to give us three really practical answers. First, own your spiritual growth. Two, shine the light of Christ. And three, share your joy in the Lord. All right, well, let's take a look at the beginning of the passage and just jump right in. Paul begins with a unique address to his audience. He says, therefore, my beloved. This is the first three words. Well, therefore, as you know, is pointing back to the context prior, which is what you heard last week in the sermon on verses 1 through 11. Namely, that Christ is Lord, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for us, and that ultimately he loved us so much that not only he died for us, he took the, he took the price for, the, for our sin that we owe. And we talked about the lordship of Jesus and how who he is changes our lives. And so this therefore is pointing back to that, the lordship of Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. And then he says, my beloved. 
which is kind of an intimate thing to write in a letter. I mean, I don't know if you write even, just, would you even address your, your spouse with my beloved, much less the group of people you're writing a letter to. But clearly, it's a very intimate way to, to address them because Paul knows these people. He planted this church. He spent lots of time with them. And he loves them. And so he's not speaking to a general audience, a generic group of people. He's not just writing to one person. He's writing to believers that he loves and knows and has spent time with in this church in Philippi. And so everything we're going to see today from Paul comes from that place of love, his care for them and his desire for their well-being. So therefore, in light of who Christ is and what he's done for us, my beloved, my fellow believers who I care for dearly, Paul says essentially this, you have always obeyed, so continue, continue to obey, especially because I'm not around. See, Paul is encouraged by their faithfulness. And he wants them to continue pursuing obedience in Christ. He wants them to continue following Jesus faithfully. And how does he say to do that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that might seem like kind of an extreme transition there. He just said, my beloved, this kind of endearing and kind address, and now fear and trembling, what does that mean? Well, I'm sure those don't feel like cozy words to you, cozy Christian words that you hear often, but they're here in God's word, so we gotta talk about it, we gotta address it. So what does that mean? Well, this is where good theology is really important, especially when we read things that we don't understand. And so I want us to talk first about the phrase, work out your own salvation, because we need to ask the question, well, what is salvation? What is Paul talking about here? Well, salvation is in three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those are big words, but we're going to explain them so they don't seem super complicated. Justification just means what God has already done that we've been saved from the penalty of sin, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he carried the weight of our sin, and that we no longer have, have that weight on us. He has taken that from us. He has justified us. He has made us righteous in God's sight. Second part of salvation is glorification. That's what will happen one day. Justification is what's already happened, and glorification is what will happen one day. And that's when we will be ultimately and completely saved from the presence of sin as we are raised from death to life and we spend eternity with God. And then the third part is sanctification. That's what happens now. That's how we are continually made more holy, how we change to be more like Jesus. So it's really important that Paul is not saying that we have to work out our justification, that we have to make God accept us that we have to make ourselves right before him, that we have to earn his favor. And he's also not saying that we have, to, we have to do our own glorification because justification and glorification are things that God does. Those are outside of us, but sanctification is different. Sanctification we have a part in. And that is the continual process of becoming more like Jesus, obeying him and putting sin to death in our lives. We all have a personal responsibility in sanctification. So Paul has this command here because we really need to hear this. We, why do we need to hear this? Romans 6 is probably the best example that addresses this from a different angle. Verses 1 and 2 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What these verses get at is that we are prone to wander. We are prone to take that forgiveness, that justification, how God has changed us, how he has given us righteousness that's not of our own, but is of Christ, and then we continue to sin that grace may abound. We take advantage of that grace, and we give ourselves freedom to continue walking in sin rather than walking in the freedom from sin. 
that God has given to us. Essentially, we, we squander the forgiveness of God is what this means. Let's look at what Dr. Lawson says about our passage in Philippians 2 as to why our own experience here, our own ownership is important when it comes to sanctification. He says, this is far removed from a passive, quietest approach to Christian living. The approach of let go and let God. Instead, every believer must exert effort in his or her pursuit of holiness. Spiritual couch potatoes grow little in grace or holiness. Being in prayer, studying the Bible, and then obeying in your life requires serious work. Every believer must resist temptation, James 4, 7, and discipline themselves for godliness. Hear what that's saying? That ultimately, we can't just sit back and say that God has saved us from the penalty of sin, but also that we're not going to respond by pursuing him and pursuing change in our lives. And that if we do sit back, we won't experience that change. Which prompts the question, where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you practicing obedience? Do you take ownership of your faith? And not in a legalistic way, because remember, Paul is not saying that you have to earn God's favor or that you should worry about him rejecting you, but are you taking responsibility for your own spiritual growth in your life? That passage in Romans 6 continues in verse 12. It says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You can hear in these verses a very active pursuit that we're putting things to death. We are, we are presenting our bodies to the Lord for righteousness and his purposes. So we have, we have to put effort and energy into pursuing holiness. And God's word here says to do that with fear and trembling. So now we've hopefully answered the question what that first part of the phrase means, work out your salvation, but what about fear and trembling? Well, yes, God saved us, but he's still God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's not a cuddly teddy bear that we get to sort of take and make what we want him to be. He's a lion, a lion who fights for us, a lion who conquers, a lion who has saved us, but he's still a lion. He's mighty, and we should be trembling before him, and we need to take seriously that he is God and we are not. He is powerful, and we are weak and lowly and fragile people. So the question is, do you fear God? Which means, essentially, are you recognizing his power and might? Or have you been tempted to try to domesticate God, to turn him into something else that doesn't bother you, that you control? See, we're called to work out our, our sanctification with fear and with trembling. And that doesn't mean that we're scared, that we're miserable, that we're terrified, again, that he's gonna reject us. But I like to think, I, I think the easiest way to think about this is probably when you're out in nature. If you've ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon or at the base of Half Dome, you feel something. You feel this, this powerful and true reality that you are small that you are not in control of this world, that there are bigger things than you out there. And there's a humbling feeling to that. That's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. If you've stood in something like, some place like that, your palms might even get sweaty. That's fear, your body's reacting to the, the magnitude of something bigger than you and the recognition of where you fall in the universe. And I think that's a good thing because you feel your frailty, your vulnerability, you recognize where you are in the universe, 
and you're overwhelmed by the beauty. It's this interesting simultaneous thing that, that you feel this fear, but you also feel awe. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. We have this, this worship, this awe and respect for God, but also this fear, this, this reality of who he is and who we are not. And we tremble. That gravity is palpable for us when we look at him rightly. And it's in that attitude of this combination of, of trembling at his might and awe and worship at who he is and his goodness and his beauty. It's with that attitude, with that perspective, that we work out our salvation, that we work out our sanctification and change. Now, this feels pretty weighty because, again, if you've been at Story Church, we don't, we don't preach a legalistic gospel that you earn your favor before God, that the weight of your salvation is on you and that you'll, you'll lose it if you're not good enough. That is not what the Bible teaches but there is some weight here as far as the responsibility you have. But that's where the good news comes in, in verse 13. It says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So ultimately, even with all that we've just seen, God is the one who changes you. It's not ultimately on your shoulders. It's not within your own power and your own might to just will yourself into change. God doesn't save you and then toss you into the world to figure it out and put all this together. That power to change has been given to us by God, by the Holy Spirit who indwells within us, convicting us and helping us grow, helping us see truth, helping us understand God's word because we need that. This is good news because we are broken people. We are very broken people. We are in a broken world and we are constantly reminded of how much growth we need. Anytime we get prideful enough to think that we've arrived, we've gotten to some level of spiritual prowess, we're very quickly reminded of how much more we need God to change us. I know I am. And ultimately in this, that means we have a personal responsibility to grow, to pursue growth, to put forth effort. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Humbled and sobered, by the holiness of our God and by the beauty of what he's done for us. That's how we intentionally pursue spiritual growth. We don't just sit back and float. We have a part to own. And that's our first point this morning. Own your spiritual growth. All right, let's jump back in the passage looking at verse 14 and 15. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Now, you've probably heard this passage either as a parent or in the context of parenting, of like, yeah, kids, don't grumble, don't complain. Be, be innocent children, be good kids. But unfortunately, this passage isn't just for kids, it's for us, because we are a lot of big kids that often find ourselves doing the very same things. And so Paul starts with a big one, complaining and arguing, grumbling and disputing. Now, this might seem familiar if you grew up in the church, or not really seem like a big deal, but this is super countercultural, this idea to not grumble and not complain, because all our world ever does is grumble and complain and argue. Social media, you could argue, at this point, almost exists to just hold up the collective complaining, whining, and arguing of our whole world, of all of humanity. But God calls us in that world to be his children who don't do that, who don't participate in those things. And rather than our mouths being used to tear people down, to argue, to whine, 
he asks us to use our speech for good. A great passage to help us understand this more is Titus 2, 7 through 8. It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, this is really what encapsulates the idea of being blameless. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, that we have no sin. That's not possible. We're we're broken, sinful people. We still need Jesus every day. But it means that we live in such a way and we speak in such a way so that others can't easily condemn us. We're not running our mouths, doing and saying things that make our God look bad and make us look bad. So, So blameless living, ultimately, it's not compatible with a lifestyle of grumbling, complaining, and arguing with others. So we have to actively fight that because our world is constantly teaching us, discipling us, and giving us opportunities to do the opposite, to just complain about everything. You can go on Yelp or Google and write reviews when you're frustrated with a restaurant. You can go on Twitter or an Instagram or Facebook and, and argue about politics and, and put the stuff that you, you don't like. I was just at Costco the other day just trying to have a conversation with the person who's getting our groceries checked out. And it was like, no matter what I said, everything was an opportunity for her to talk about how she doesn't like our government and she doesn't like the school system. And it was like, I just kept trying to ask her how her day was, just trying to be friendly. But you could tell, like, she was not happy. And no matter what I said, it was like, oh, okay, we're going over here now. We're going over here now. We're talking about masks. Like, I I thought we were done talking about that. But okay, it's going to come up again. The shields, it was my mistake. The shields are gone at Costco. And I said, oh, cool. The shields are gone. And then I I regretted it immediately. <clears throat> but truly, I think we all experience that. We live in a world that's just, it's just abounding with complaint. There's, there's a bitterness, especially now, and frustration with people, with systems, with government, with so many things. And oftentimes, it doesn't take very long in person or online for human beings to just exude and seep out all of their frustration, all of their complaining, and all of the arguing that's been going on. Paul says that our world is crooked and twisted, but we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be light in that crooked and twisted world. So when others are venting about their anger, about politics, about people, about systems, about whatever else it is that's going on and their anger is just coming out, we are instead supposed to to trust the Lord with everything, not allow those things to, to take such root in us to cause anger and fear and anxiety. And we're supposed to be more careful with our words and what we say. When others around us are gossiping and slandering, whether it's your your coworkers or your family or even here at church, we choose not to participate in that. We choose to speak well of others behind their back. If we have an issue, we go to them, we talk to them about it because we want to honor the Lord with our words. And while others waste their time arguing and disputing about everything that you could possibly think of that's going on right now, We choose not to live that way, not to jump into those narratives and instead be peacemakers. Not that we don't care about what was going on in our world, we don't care about justice, but we seek to make peace and to be makers of peace where God has placed us. See, we are God's children, his family, which means that ultimately our identity, our life, our culture is supposed to be his. We're part of his family, not the family of the world. And so we have to look more like him and do things the way that he does instead of the way that our world does things, which means we're people of grace, we're people of truth, and we're people of peace. That's how we're lights in a dark world. And this is hard work. This requires a lot of self-control. 
So how do we do this? Well, verse 16 holds the answer for us because we certainly can't do this in our own strength. It says, by holding fast to the word of life. There is just no way that we can be blameless, that we can avoid grumbling and complaining without God's word. It is the very word of life, as it says here. And we have to hold to it tightly, go to it often, study it, memorize it. Because apart from his word, we will just end up doing things exactly like the rest of the world does. There's so many sources of information and influence constantly, all day, every day, telling you what's true, what's good, how you should live your life, what's important, what you should be angry about, what you should be happy about, nonstop. The only way that you can hope to live for Christ and to be blameless is if his word holds a higher place in your life than those things. And unless you go to it and hold tightly to it, all of those things will overwhelm you and you will be struggling. And this isn't so we can be superior to others, just to be clear. That we know more, that we're better people than everyone else. That is also the way of the world. Moral posturing and superiority. Instead, we're supposed to shine as lights. And lights that are different than what you might think. Because light in the dark doesn't mean that you draw attention to yourself. It means that you are shining light on our Savior. On what's true and what's good about him. That in the darkness, you as a light show the pathway to goodness and truth, the way to Jesus Christ. So the question is, does your life do that? Are we pointing to Jesus or are we pointing to the world? Especially with the way we speak and what we post and what we talk about. Does our life point people to Jesus and push back the darkness of the world? Or are we participating in that darkness and becoming just like anyone else around us? See, God calls us to be blameless and innocent children. And that requires, as it says, that we do everything without grumbling and without complaining. Not some things, everything. We pursue him, we work, we engage with our neighbors. Whatever it is, every situation, God asks us to do all of those things without grumbling and complaining. And so, I don't know about you, but I love how Paul finishes this section because he talks about this idea of running in vain. I don't know if you've ever felt that, as a believer, if you're either worried that something you've done, your pursuit of Christ has been in vain, but I think sometimes it can feel like it is. Following Jesus doesn't always feel like it brings us a lot of positive things and reward. It doesn't often make our lives easier, it doesn't give us more money, and it doesn't make our problems go away. I think these last few years for me as a pastor, but I think just as a Christian, and probably you feel the same way, Pursuing Jesus and trying to live faithfully as a Christian has been really hard. There's been a lot of chaos. There's been a lot of brokenness in our world and in our culture. And sometimes following Jesus can be discouraging. Because as we know, God's word says that following him will bring suffering. He actually promises us that. But Paul's eyes are not on his current circumstances, and that's what's different. Remember, he's in prison for the gospel. He's in prison for following Jesus. So if anyone understands the challenges, real and tangible challenges of following Jesus, it's Paul right now. But he's not looking at today. He's not looking at his circumstances. He's looking to eternity, looking to the day of Christ. And he says he wants to be proud when that day comes. He wants to be relieved when that day comes, that the way he lived his life, that the race that he was running wasn't in vain. See, this is the right perspective for us because if we're honest, people who make lots of money, 
have power and find success in the world, they typically don't get there by living this way. Usually, it doesn't happen because they love people well and they were kind and careful with their words and they fought for being blameless and innocent peacemakers. Usually, it happens by being ruthless, backstabbing, lying, cheating, manipulating, belittling people, using others to get ahead in life. That's often how the big success in this world comes about, by doing those things. But because we aren't living for today and we're living for eternity, there's a different way for us. Those who live a ruthless and crooked lifestyle that seem to be benefiting from that today ultimately will be held accountable and will be punished one day. And those who refuse to participate in that way of living, that way of speaking and treating people, they will be found faithful. They'll be proud, as Paul says, that that they didn't run in vain. And the only way we can do this, as he says, is by holding tightly to and not deviating from God's word. What's true, what's right, what's ultimately good for us. That's the only way we can know that we're not running in vain. And that's how we shine in this world, by obeying him, with our lives, by refusing to participate in the grumbling and arguing and complaining ways that our world lives, and ultimately striving for blamelessness, that our lives would reflect Christ rather than invite people to point, out, point us out and say, hypocrite. Because we don't want that. No, no one wants that. That is, that is the obstacle to us pointing to Jesus and shining as lights. When people can obviously look at us, especially with the way we we treat people, the way we speak, the way we use the internet, that is the most obvious way for people to look at us and go, oh, you're a fraud. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Pursue blamelessness. Be innocent as best as you can. This is how we can be a light for Christ. And so the second point this morning is pretty simple. With all of those things in mind, shine the light of Christ. Okay, let's look back at the passage starting in verse 17 as we close this out. It says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So we keep talking about how Paul's in prison, and we say it over and over, and you kind of know that. And if you grew up in church, it's kind of, you don't really think it's a very big deal, and it can be kind of familiar. And um, I'm just thinking maybe prison doesn't seem like a big deal to you. Well, Michael Scott also had this concern with his office in Dunder Mifflin in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He was concerned because his employees started talking about how prison sounded better than working in their office. And so, of course, the most logical solution, he puts on a purple do-rag and decides to try to scare them straight about how bad prison is. Now, I'll say I think his, his description of, of prison was probably not very accurate. I don't think that Paul was eating gruel sandwiches or was attacked by dementors in prison. But Paul really was in prison. It is a big deal. Prison is not a joke, which means his freedom was taken from him. You should probably take that off or no one's going to listen to anything I say. <laughs> this is not a modern-day prison that Paul's dealing with, with TVs and continuing education classes and parole opportunities. Paul's in prison falsely for preaching the gospel, and he does not have a hope of leaving. He, he does not have a get-out-of-jail-free card. He doesn't have a lawyer who's trying to help him fight the charges. He's on death row, truly. We know that about two years after he wrote the book of Philippians, Paul was put to death. So that really does impact the way we read what Paul says here. 
about being in prison and about what he's willing to endure for the gospel. So I just want to read that again with that real reality in mind of this man on death row, falsely imprisoned, facing the end of his life with no hope. He says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's amazing. Paul is literally facing death. And yet his attitude is that he is willing to be sacrificed for his faith. And even if he does, he will be glad and he will rejoice. Now, this is really mind-boggling for me, and I think it, it probably is for all of us. The concept of martyrdom in general, of being killed for your faith, is, is scary. It's something I think we've probably all wondered, like, would I be willing to do that? Would I actually endure that, or would I, would I run away? Would I be a coward? And I think on a, on a smaller level, it's really easy for us to be robbed of our joy. Paul's saying he has joy, even in that circumstance, but I think today, I'll just speak for myself, I am very easily robbed of my joy by things of much less significance than jail or facing death. I mean, if I'm on the highway and there's that person that's in the fast lane and they don't know that the word fast is before that lane, I get so frustrated and angry and I'll tell someone about it later. Gas prices going up and down. I mean, truly, that's enough for us sometimes to be robbed of our joy. Allison and I went to a restaurant the other night and like it's happened a hundred times in the last couple of years, service is not awesome when 20-year-olds 20, are the primary people doing it at restaurants. And it was frustrating, and we didn't get our waters filled ever, and they didn't bring our food for 30 minutes, and they didn't bring us the check for 20 minutes, and it was like, it's not actually a big deal. We ate food, we're fine, we didn't get sick, but it's so easy for little things, really little things in the grand scheme of things in life, to rob us of our joy and put us in a bad mood and ruin our evening. So how is it possible then, when we get frustrated by such small things, that Paul, who's facing prison, he's in chains, and he is awaiting a death sentence for crimes he didn't commit, for a bogus charge, he's rejoicing in jail? Well, there's two primary reasons here that we see in the passage. First is this, Paul's joy comes from being part of the body of Christ. See, seeing his brothers and sisters obey Jesus, he says it in the beginning, it brings him joy. This passage actually paints, I think, a much more beautiful image of what the church is to be and can be. Because this isn't some sort of weird, mentally, you know, inf mentally enforced, self-contrived joy Paul has as some monk who's just like tuning things out and trying to force himself to be joyful. He's saying he is glad and rejoices with the Philippian church. It's a shared joy. See, when you love people deeply, their emotions become your emotions to a certain degree. Their circumstances, their hardships, they weigh on you. But their, the things that happen that are incredible in their life, the things that they celebrate, the answers to prayer, those things build you up and fill you with joy when you care about them. When you spend years investing in a relationship, in a marriage, in, in your relationship with your children or family members, but also in the church, you are legitimately affected by how those people are doing. So the obedience and faithfulness of the church in Philippi, that encourages Paul, that what, he, what he's done, how the time he's spent with them, these people he cares about, that they're doing well, that they're pursuing Jesus, that their lives are growing and they're changing. That genuinely gives Paul joy because he cares about them. This is why we have membership 
at Story Church. We don't talk about it a ton. It's on our website. We don't make a huge deal out of it, but maybe we should. Because it's not a cult or a secret club or some sort of weird way to sort of twist your arm to make you give money. It's really just a, a modern necessity that we have this mutual agreement of who is really at this church, who, who desires to be held accountable, who wants to do life linking arm in arm for the long haul, who wants to be part of the church family, which means we love each other, we pray for each other, and we serve each other. And when there's needs in our midst, we use our time, our finances to support one another and to make those things happen. We make sacrifices for the sake of the church, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we do it with joy, not out of some obligation or compulsion. And I'm telling you, there is a lot of joy when you do that. I wish you could have been here at our member meeting on Sunday night last week. It was fun. We're laughing. We're just enjoying being together because we love each other. And it's not that members are better than non-members. I don't want to try to make you feel guilty about that or weird about that. But there's something about that serious commitment that we make to one another when we say, I love you, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ, and I want to follow Jesus together and do life together and make a commitment to not leave each other. Joy, when done that way, is contagious. It's something that's shared. When you genuinely love others and you have things in common like that, that joy spreads. It's not something that we hold to ourselves. Okay, so that's the first reason. His joy is, is abundant. So the second reason is this. Paul's hope is in the Lord, not his circumstances. We've talked about this already, but the reality of human life is our circumstances are constantly changing. They will always be outside of our control. We will always have some type of hardship, frustration, suffering, and disappointment in life always. So our options are kind of twofold. Either we can spend our lives pushing back against that, trying to achieve as much as we can, have as much fun as we possibly can, get as much money as we can, and run from any pain or discomfort as much as possible to resist that reality that really all that we have is so fragile and we're not in control of it. Or the second option is we can submit to that. We can say, okay, this is reality. This is true. I'm not in control of my circumstances, and instead I'm gonna trust that God loves me, that he's actually in control, and that's better than me being in control. Our world will teach us the first option in a myriad of different ways, to fight pain, to run from discomfort, and just to do everything we can to try to make our lives feel good because life is hard. But ultimately, it never pans out. It leaves us super disappointed and looking for more. Feels like we beat up on Tom Brady a lot, at least pastors do, talking about how he's achieved so much, but there's just so much brokenness there. He's been quoted many times talking about how he just, he, he's, he just gotta have another, another ring and he doesn't know what else there is. Like nothing ever satisfies. Now his marriage is falling apart. And that's not something to make fun of, it's sad. And it's falling apart because of idolatry, for the best I can find out from reading. He won't stop, he can't quit playing. He needs to win more. And he's not willing to stay home with his wife and his kids and invest in them because he can't let go of his career. It never pans out when we, when we choose that path. Even guys like him that have so much more than any of us probably ever will have, achievement that blows all of our careers out of the water, it's never enough if that is what your life is about. But when you submit to the reality of your vulnerability, the reality that God is in control, that he's sovereign, and that he's good. 
you actually can have joy. You can rejoice in him. You can rejoice in his promises that he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you, that he is your rock and your salvation. You can rejoice in his character that even though our world changes, he never changes and he never does evil and he always has what's good and what's best in mind, even if we can't see it. You can rejoice in God's provision, how he's sustained us over the years. I think of that for our church. It's been three crazy years as a church and God has sustained us as a church, but I know many of you in your own lives, how God has taken care of you. He's been there for you. That's worth rejoicing in. We can rejoice in his goodness to us, looking to the ways that he intimately cares for us, is near to us and has shown his love for us and ultimately how he saved us from darkness. See, ultimately, Paul recognizes that his life is not his. It's not his own. It's the Lord's. He has accepted the reality, not only of his difficult circumstances, but of human life, the brokenness that comes with it and the fact that we can't control it. So even while facing crazy trials, in jail, facing death, Paul has a greater reason to rejoice, and he shares that with others. So do you need more joy? I would venture a guess the answer to that around this room is yes, I would like more joy. Are you facing trials, painful circumstances, or anxieties, worries? Friends, ultimately our joy is only in the Lord and can only be in the Lord if it's to last. And the second we put our hope in our money, in our relationships, in the stuff we have, in our careers, we're gonna be let down. Maybe not right away, but eventually we'll be let down. But if you put your hope in Christ, nothing can steal that joy because that joy is not created by you and what you do. It's something given to you by your Savior and by the fact that he's in charge, that he's never changing, and that ultimately what he's done for you is the hope you have secure in heaven that nothing in your life can change and can take away. See, this is why Paul says earlier to do all things without grumbling and complaining That's not just about behavior modification. Truly, there is a a joy and a thankfulness that comes from us when we recognize what we have in Christ. Grumbling will rob you of your joy, but guess what? It will also rob the people around you of their joy. Just like joy is something that is spread, complaining and negativity is also something that is spread. We are either spreading the joy of Christ or we are spreading a negative, bad attitude even if it's rooted in hard things, we are either ultimately representing Christ and sharing the joy we have in him with others, or we're bringing our complaints, our frustrations, and our anger, and we're just spreading that around to the people we interact with at church, but also those who don't know Jesus out in the world. We need help, and we gotta do this together because there's no way we can do this alone. Again, this is not a singular effort because life is hard, suffering is real, and we are easily discouraged as people. So we need to work together, to pursue joy together, and to share that with one another, and to practice not being a people of grumbling and complaining together, because that is gonna spread in our midst, one way or the other. This brings us to our third point this morning. Share your joy in the Lord. So how do we persist? How do we follow Jesus? What are these practical things that Paul gives us, regardless of how hard and dark and twisted our world is? One, own your spiritual growth. Take responsibility for your own holiness. Participate in what God is doing. Don't just sit back and expect your circumstances and your life to change. Desire that growth and put effort into it. Cling to God's word. 
to shine the light of Christ. Let your life not just be about you, but be about representing Jesus to those around you and letting your words and your actions in this life point to him instead of pointing to yourself or disappearing into the ways of the world. And third, share your joy in the Lord. Recognize both that you need that joy, that your joy is in the Lord only, and that it needs to be something that's shared and you need other people to share it with you. Well, if you aren't a follower of Jesus and you're here or you're listening, I hope simply that you would just surrender your life to Jesus, that you'd see that he loves you, he died for you, and you feel the lack of hope, probably. You feel the lack of joy in this world. You've probably been let down many times by trying to find it somewhere and things not panning out. And I hope you would just hear that amidst that hardship, amidst that suffering, that, that Jesus has the answer and that that real joy and real hope that lasts is something that's afforded to you. That God loves you enough to send his son to die for you, to take your sin, but also to give you life and give you life abundantly in him and give you joy. And that this is urgent because like we've talked about, you don't know what your life holds. You don't know how long you're gonna live. You don't know what's gonna happen today or tomorrow. You don't have time to wait around. This is an urgent thing. So I'd encourage you to, to take that urgency and follow Jesus today. You can talk to me, you can talk to someone at our welcome booth. We'd love to walk with you through that. Okay, believers, fellow Christians, there is great joy to be had when we commit ourselves to one another in the church. God has commanded us to be sober-minded as we take that responsibility for our spiritual growth, and he's commanded us to obey him without grumbling and complaining as we seek out holiness. And so I think we just, to, to align with this practical message this morning, these practical things Paul's giving to us is to ask ourselves some real, straightforward, practical questions. What is God asking you to confront today? I think there's probably three main categories here. First is spiritual laziness. Maybe you feel convicted about that. Maybe you feel like you've been living that Romans 6, 1 and 2 lifestyle where you've taken the grace and the mercy of God and you kind of just coast. Ask God to change you. Ask him to change your heart. Put that laziness to death. Get into the scriptures as it says here. This is the only way if you cling to the word of life that you can be holy, you can grow, you can change. That's the only way you'll know what's good and true and have joy. And that's the only way you'll know that your life, your pursuit of Jesus, your life as a Christian is not running in vain because you're aligned with him and what he has for you. What about grumbling and complaining? That's number two. Maybe you feel convicted about that. Confess that to somebody. Tell someone you're close to, especially if you've done that to them. Hey, you know what? I've had a bad attitude. I complain about what's going on. I don't thank the Lord. And I've not been a purveyor of joy and peace. I've brought negativity into this relationship and this friendship. Confess those things and then ask God to help you, to give you a better attitude, to help you change the way that you speak to others. Choose not to participate in gossip, slander, or just unhelpful arguing. Be careful when you look out into this world. Be more aware of what it is you're being told to do and what you're being what's being modeled for you. And instead of mirroring all of that, even in small ways, choose to push back on it and be a purveyor of God's hope, grace, and peace to be a light in the darkness. Third, maybe it's lack of joy. And that's what's really you're wrestling with as you hear this passage this morning. I don't know if that's from hard circumstances that have been really tough and suffering, 
Or maybe you just feel kind of apathetic. You just feel kind of bland after a few crazy years of what's going on in the world and you just kind of just feel like you don't care about anything anymore. I would venture a guess if you're feeling either of those ways, you need to connect yourself to the church, connect yourself to the body of Christ. And I don't mean attend or necessarily even become a member or something like that, but to commit yourselves to do life with others. Because God, his design was never to give you a Bible, put you in a room by yourself, shut the door, and expect you to just figure everything out. That's just not how ever God has designed us to follow him. It doesn't work. You are made for a community, but you've also been given the opportunity to be in community. And so I just challenge you to commit yourself to this place, to build relationships with other people, whether it's serving or jumping in on a home group or whatever it is for you. Don't just come here to hear and listen and then go and feel alone in life trying to figure out what it looks like to live for Jesus. You need other people to help you, to help you see what's true, but you need to be part of a place that shares the joy of the Lord to lift all of our spirits so that we don't become like our grumbling and complaining and discouraged world. I consider, ask you to consider how you can serve rather than be served, how that you can give and not just receive in the way that you look at what it means to be at Story Church. Ultimately, Philippians 2, 12 through 18 shows us that regardless of our circumstances and regardless of what you feel convicted by this morning, our hope for change and our hope in life is only in Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything else is easily lost, easily broken, and will easily fall apart. But our God never changes, never leaves us, never forsakes us, never abandons us, and has promised us as his children an eternal protected hope that no circumstance, suffering, or hardship can ever take away from you. This is how we can do life together. This is how we can actually have joy that's not some weird, creepy Christian joy that doesn't seem to make sense with what's really going on, but it's a joy in something that is real, and that's why we have it. We share that joy with each other. We cling to God's word, his truth, and then we can trust that our work, that our very lives, that we are running together, that it's not in vain. Pray with me. Oh, Father, life is really discouraging and frustrating at times. We get frustrated by small things, by stupid things in the grand scheme of life. God, we are easily robbed of our joy, and I know we are easily caught up in the negativity, the grumbling, the complaining, and the idolatrous pursuit of trying to control everything and try to find happiness that our world is constantly showing us, modeling for us, and telling us that that's what we need to be about. God, we are so easily drawn into that and guilty of that, Lord. So forgive us. Forgive me. <laughs> forgive me when I am angry at things I shouldn't be, when I don't have a positive attitude, when I don't celebrate who you are, what you're doing, when I don't share joy, but I share frustration or a bad attitude, or I grumble or I complain. God, would you forgive us of those things? Lord, but would you also help us to live differently? Would you help us to have real joy in you, regardless of our circumstances, Father? Would you help us to actually shine bright as lights, pointing people to you in this world? rather than getting caught up and being unhappy with the, the darkness of our world or even participating in that darkness, God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you forgive us. Not only did you justify us, but God, you are the one who actually does that work of sanctification in our hearts. You are the one that gives us the power to overcome sin, that gives us freedom from sin. You're the only reason we can pursue holiness and actually change 
not just with our words, but our very lives actually change, God. So would you do that for us? God, wherever it is that, that you have challenged each and every one of us today, God, would you change our hearts? Would you help us to live not for today, but to live for eternity and for you? Father, would you help us that we might be like Paul, who can be facing hardship and challenge, and fear and anxiety, and yet rejoice because of who you are and what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we love. God, we thank you for your word, for how it bears truth and life on everything, on our everyday life, Lord. We thank you that you've spoken to us, that you've been present with us, Lord. Ask that you would help us to not hear these words and, and go home and forget about them, as I know we all probably often are guilty of, Lord. But with this genuinely sink deep, God, would you change our lives through the power of your word and the power of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.